1: Late yesterday, the White House uh, said that broad tariffs of 25% on steel and 10% on aluminum that are already in effect against China, Russia, Japan, and others would not go into force for the European Union as previously planned. Instead, the European Union has another month to continue negotiating with the United States about the new pact in order to avoid the tariffs. Uh, Canada, Mexico, they were given an extension uh, until uh, June 1st. Uh, Talks continuing to rewrite the North American Free Trade agreement. Here to tell us more about trade and China is Stephen Roach. He is a senior fellow and lecturer at Yale University, also a Bloomberg View columnist. Uh, Stephen Roach, uh, give us your perspective on the uh, trip that Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, is taking to China and whether they will actually accomplish uh, any resolution to the trade dispute between China and the United States.
3: Well, I worry that this is a waste of... um taxpayer money to send these guys over to beijing there's no real strategy that they have to um... uh... negotiate a, um uh... meaningful concession with uh, the, the chinese and they they go over with a with an approach that really <clears throat> has not, nothing in the way of macro coherence doesn't understand the role that deficits play in um, uh is a symptom of America's own macroeconomic imbalances. So I'm not too optimistic this trip is going to accomplish anything, Pam.
2: Stephen, you wrote a column for Bloomberg where you were saying the U.S. needs China more than China needs the U.S. Does Beijing know this? You know, this is, this is not, you know,
3: um, uh, astrophysics. They know that uh, they provide American consumers with a lot of low-cost goods that they need to make uh, uh, to, to make ends meet they know they buy a lot of treasuries and they know that China is now the third largest and most rapidly growing market for us exports. none of these are big state secrets. China understands all of that uh, these are these are issues of course that we haven't spent a whole lot of time absorbing at the policy level in Washington.
2: Well, the reason why I ask is because Beijing came out and said, yeah, we're happy to negotiate with you, United States. Uh, we're just not willing to discuss uh, a mandatory $100 billion cut in America's $375 billion annual trade deficit with China or curbs on Beijing's $300 billion plan to bankroll the country's industrial upgrade uh, into advanced technologies, which are the two main issues that the U.S. Uh, wants to talk about. What do you make of that?
3: well, um, first of all, you know the the idea that you know we can make America great again by cutting a bilateral deficit with China or anybody else is totally ludicrous i mean if if we don't rebuild our national savings and of course we're going the other way with these big Trump administration budget deficits, we can slash a hundred billion two hundred even three hundred billion off the Chinese uh bilateral deficit it'll just go to someone else, and that someone else is a higher cost producer that'll end up taxing. American workers. And in terms of asking China to capitulate on its industrial policy, I mean, are we prepared to do that with our own industrial policy? Or did did Japan do it? Or has Germany done it? Uh, It's ludicrous to to accuse China of um, of, of going after supporting innovations-based initiatives when we all do it.
1: Stephen Roach, give us your thoughts on the dispute over intellectual property rights with China.
3: Intellectual property is the core of any modern innovations-based society. But I've looked, uh, Pim, at the, the accusations that have been leveled uh, at China in the 182-page um, uh, document uh, produced by the U.S. Trade Rep uh, on March the 22nd. It's not a it's not a good case at all. Um, they 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 make three main points that uh, China. Uh, uh, Steals technology through joint ventures. Uh, that's ludicrous. I was in a joint venture, and you know, when you you're in a joint venture, you join with your partner and you build and share uh, uh, operating systems and, and innovation. There's nothing forced about it. Then they go after China for uh, uh, being a predator in these uh, uh, going out uh, outward bound um, foreign direct investment initiatives like Made in China. We've just talked about that. I think that is uh, ludicrous. There is a, uh, a case to be made for uh, uh, China uh, using cyber espionage to um, uh, uh, go after U.S. Uh, innovation. Uh, and that, that certainly was a compelling case that, that President Obama presented to uh, Xi Jinping at the Sunnyland Summit in uh, 2015. But now I think a fair amount of that uh, uh, type of activity has subsided. So there is a case, but, you know, is it a credible case? Is it a strong case? Is it a compelling case? I don't
2: think so. Well, Stephen, you know, I, I want to push back a little bit because every economist that we've talked to agrees that uh, that the trade d- negotiations between the U.S. and China haven't been level for a long time or that the trade uh, just agreements in general, given the fact that China really is a closed economy and they do have bans on, uh, on U.S. companies coming in too much, you know, or owning too much of their presence in China. What areas do you see room for improvement to level the, the playing field here? Or do you think things are just fine.
3: Well, you know, there's so much generalization going on right now. You know, everyone feels this way. Everyone feels it's unequal. Um, This probably, you know, is is exactly the way um, we dealt with the the communist threat in the 1950s under the Inquisitions led by Senator Joseph McCarthy. Uh, It it becomes something that is um, unpatriotic to uh, uh, openly uh, a, a debate. Uh, China has uh, certainly uh, been tough in competing for market share around the world. There are things that they don't do that are not fair, that are inequitable, that we may not like, and they need to be held accountable for that. But but to condemn them uh, for literally everything they're trying to do to grow uh, a large developing economy uh, is ludicrous. The, the areas that I think we should focus on are Market access, making certain that our companies have just as much access to their markets uh, as they do to ours, and I've been long in favor of pushing ahead negotiations on a bilateral investment treaty between the US. and China. This is stalled out uh, and for the, you know, the Trump administration that prides itself uh, as being uh, great deal makers, why not do a deal on this? This yeah. is the obvious thing to do.
2: Thank you so much for being with us and for your insights. Stephen Roach, senior fellow and lecturer at Yale University, also a Bloomberg View columnist. Well, since the kickoff of earnings season, basically April 13th, we've seen energy companies perform the absolute best among S&P 500 uh, corporations. Here to talk about uh, the future outlook is Liam Denning, energy mining and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. So uh, we have seen an outperformance in oil companies. And I'm just wondering, uh, do you think that there is a lot of room for it to continue?
4: Uh, I think so. Um uh, it it's it's partly an oil price uh, phenomenon. Obviously, oil prices are up, and and that does a lot of good. But the thing we shouldn't forget is what these companies have been doing to um, to actually make themselves just better companies. And we've seen this from the majors in terms of uh, scaling back on very bloated uh, investment budgets, trying to get more efficient in terms of. Uh, which projects they do and how they build them. Uh, but we've also seen it with the independent guys. Yeah, you know, there is a lot more talk now of um, uh, smaller exploration and production companies actually trying to live within their means, generate returns rather than just grow uh, as fast as they possibly can. We'll see whether that lasts if oil prices go higher. But for now, they seem to be making the right noises.
1: Liam, uh, US production of oil, 11 million barrels a day. Right. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a big, this is historic.
4: It is historic, yeah. I mean, it's It's the probably the, the biggest thing that's happened in the oil market in the last decade. Okay, and uh,
1: any chance that we're going to see even increased production? Because what we've heard in the past is, oh, maybe they'll get to 11 million. Mm-hmm. We could be headed a lot higher. The issue is just getting the oil out from where it is. Let's say West Texas, no pipelines, no roads.
4: Yeah, uh, and when the logistical bottlenecks in West Texas will be eased within about 18 months, I would say. Um, as to how high it goes, um, I mean, there are all sorts of estimates out there. It certainly doesn't seem to be uh, slowing down anytime soon. And I think the key thing to watch out for is uh, with prices where they are, that kind of 60, 70 range, a lot of producers uh, are well able to to keep growing production, to keep hedging their production. The thing to watch out for is this, this kind of geopolitical premium that is, creeping back into the market, which for the guys in West Texas is just a windfall because it, you know, none of that stuff actually affects any of their production. It all happens very far away. And uh, the more supply shocks you see elsewhere, the, the more room that creates for, uh, for U.S. barrels.
2: You know, that, that, I want to pick up on that point because I think it's a really interesting one. Just how much of a geopolitical risk premium are we actually seeing baked into the market right now?
4: Okay, so now you're asking me how long a piece of string is. <laughs> and, uh, so how long is a piece of string, Liam? i get you that ruler. It's a special ruler. Okay, yes. sorry, I forgot to bring my piece of string to the studio. Um, so it's impossible to say how much exactly. <laughs> Make it uh, up,
2: Liam, come what, on.
4: Okay, <laughs> uh, what I would say is that this has become much more of a narrative over the past six months or so than it was Uh, for the preceding three or four years. In some ways, uh, the the crash that happened in 2014, which was, you know, in large part driven by the shale boom, sort of inoculated the market against geopolitical shocks, or at least it seemed like it. No one really seemed to care about uh, you know, the latest intrigues in Saudi Arabia or, uh, you know, what was happening in the Middle East. Um, people are caring more about it now, partly because inventories have come down, um, because demand has been pretty strong, partly in response to low oil prices, and because obviously OPEC, Russia and some other countries have been holding supply off the market. And if you bring inventories down, then people start to worry a bit more about supply shocks, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. It creates a certain danger in the market. Um, Right now, we're in a position where there is a lot of speculative money that is very long crude oil prices. Um, Demand, while strong globally, is showing signs of responding to higher prices, the U.S., Demand data for February just came out yesterday, and one of the things that struck me about it was that oil demand was up about half a million barrels a day, but none of that was actually what we tend to think of as oil demand, actual refined products like gasoline and that sort of thing. It was all natural gas liquids. Gasoline demand was actually down, and if you look back at what's happened to gasoline demand since late 2016, which is when prices began to rise at the pump, that's kind of flattened out again.
1: Are you loading up the car to take that summer trip because it's going to cost you more? Two dollars eighty-one cents is the uh, AAA average uh, gasoline price per gallon. Yeah, and if gallon. you
4: look in a lot of cities, it's it's already north of oh, yeah, three much, bucks. Yeah. yeah,
1: people are going to be paying more this summer.
4: Absolutely, yeah. and I think that does begin to feed into demand, and that's the risk you get with these quote-unquote, geopolitical premiums.
1: Thanks very much for being with us. As always, Liam Denning, Energy, Mining, and Commodities columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Read all about it at uh, Bloomberg.com.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like?
2: How bad will it be? That is the question with Apple, which is set to report earnings after the bell today. Uh, And uh, people are worried that they are seeing slowing demand for smartphones, which have provided them with a seemingly unlimited amount of cash filling their coffers. Joining us now, Stephen Milanovic. He is Managing Director and Technology Analyst at UBS, joining us from UBS headquarters in New York. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. So uh, what are you expecting and how much bad news is being already baked into shares of Apple.
5: Well, you have to assume a fair amount is baked in just because practically every Apple supplier has projected uh, June quarter disappointment indirectly blaming Apple. On the other hand, the stock has held up quite well. So this quarter might be a bit of a tug of war between, on one hand, disappointing iPhone units and, on the other hand, uh, significant buyback and positives like services growth. So uh, there's, a, there's some built in, but there's still some room for
1: disappointment. Give us your revenue estimates for what you think Apple's going to do. So
5: we think the company is going to do a little over $61 billion in the March quarter. And remember that they, they rarely have ever missed their guidance for a quarter. The real issue, though, is what's the guidance going to be for June? And for June, we're just over $50 billion. Uh, we're looking for about 41 million units for the iPhone. I think the concern is that some of the lower numbers on the street suggest it could be as low as $35 million. So that's going to be a number people are looking closely at.
2: I'm trying to understand whether we can interpret all of this hype about declining smartphone sales as a failure of the iPhone 10, or is this just a natural part of the cycle?
5: I tend to think of it more as a market issue. Now, there is a narrative that the 10 has been disappointing, that the company's overpriced it. Um, I'm not sure that's the case in the sense that we find that users are moving up the Apple price curve. That is, the percentage of buyers buying a phone, say, over $700, we think has doubled this cycle. And if you don't like the 10, there's plenty of other options for you. I'm a bit more concerned that the market's mature, that uh, geographies like China, which we thought would really bounce back for Apple, are coming back very gradually, and that we continue to see... An elongation of the upgrade cycle. So I think it's as much a market issue as it is an Apple problem.
1: Can you speak a little bit more about China? Because there are some estimates that between 70, between 60 and 70 million Chinese consumers are due to upgrade their phones over the next 12 to 18 months.
5: That's right. You know, Apple sold about 70 million phones in fiscal 15 as China Mobile came on and you had a big screen phone. It was a huge year. We're nowhere close to that. Um, Hong Kong is pretty much gone. So we're talking about mainland China, which is around 40 million units a year. We and others thought that there'd be a lot of people waiting to upgrade. And uh, therefore, we'd see, you know, some sort of double digit growth this year. Uh, We're beginning to think that's less likely. We think that the number of people who can afford an iPhone in China is fairly flat, that uh, Apple's pretty much splitting the high end of the market with Huawei. And that you are seeing elongation of upgrade cycles even in China. So um, we still expect to see some revenue growth for Apple in China with a higher ASP, but we've kind of gotten off the idea that we're going to see a huge bounce back.
2: So this is such a fascinating issue to me uh, and just it sort of confirmed with Sony's earnings overnight where they reported a massive decline in the production of, uh, of cameras for smartphones. And I'm just wondering, uh, what can Apple do to diversify their business so that there is less focus? on the smartphone super cycle and its potential death.
5: Well, first of all, I think the, the smartphone's not in a terrible position for Apple because their installed base has been growing. So it's a question of when not if people are going to buy another iPhone. But to diversify, you've seen them certainly boost their services business. So services is moving toward 20% of profitability. We expect it's going to grow over 20% this evening. Uh, so that's very helpful. They also have a 7 billion dollar wearables business, you know, with the watch, the HomePod, the Airbuds. So they're, you know, starting to diversify a little bit there. And as the watch, you know, really does or excuse me, as the iPhone doesn't really grow much in the future, getting a couple points of corporate growth from wearables is going to be noticeable. I don't think you're going to see tremendous new hardware from the company for the next, say, two years, but eventually you could see augmented glasses, uh, augmented reality glasses, for example. And that'll help diversify revenue a bit as well.
1: Augmenting the investor's pocketbook. How about returning money to shareholders?
5: Well, we expect a pretty big number tonight. They have about $125 billion of excess cash. We expect a good bump to the dividend and discussion of you know up to $100 billion incremental buyback. Um, the question is, over what period would that happen? I, I would say three to five years. I think it's going to be a little bit more on the gradual side. Some people have a concern that maybe they'll keep more dry powder for M&A. Possibly, but I don't expect the company is going to be that acquisitive, at least in the near term. So I think they feel the stock here is is very undervalued, particularly due to the services business. So I, I expect they'll be relatively aggressive on a buyback.
2: Does anyone care about Apple's foray into that newspaper service and other types of subscription offerings, entertainment?
5: Well, it helps the services side. You know, it's funny. The. The company has said that the vast majority of iPhone customers pay nothing for Apple services. So if they can get people starting to use services, our work finds that they actually increase their number of transactions at a 20% rate annually. So it is through new kinds of you know, video and the newspaper and so forth that they are hoping to get people into that services ecosystem. And history suggests that once they get in, they get pretty active.
2: Stephen Milanovic, thank you so much for being with us. Stephen Milanovic is Managing Director and Technology Analyst at US UBS coming to us from UBS headquarters. It is time to dig a little deeper into Fixed Income. Focus on Fixed Income brought to you by PIMCO. For investors who demand more than the markets deliver, all investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. A lot of people in the fixed income markets are focused on the Federal Reserve, which is uh, starting a two-day meeting that ends tomorrow. Uh, But also a lot of focus is on the U.S. Treasury Department that is going to announce its quarterly refunding plans at 8 30 tomorrow morning in New York. Uh, Ira, th- Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us now. Ira, I want to start with the refunding announcement because, frankly, a lot of people think that the increase in the amount of debt that the U.S. Treasury Department is, uh, is issuing uh, is part of the reason why we've seen yields actually rise. Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, of course, totally dismissing that yesterday at uh, the Milken conference. What's your perspective? What's your expectation for how much the Treasury Department is going to increase its debt sales in the next quarter?
6: Yeah. So what's interesting is that the, the Treasury Department's already said um, w- w- how much they think that they're going to have to borrow over the, uh, the course of the next two months and then the, uh, the following three months. So um, they think this quarter, so the quarter that actually started a month ago, uh, they think they're going to borrow $75 billion um, of new marketable debt, which is not particularly high. The, the second quarter, of course, you just had taxes that were paid. So you, you actually have uh, the month that just ended in April tends to be a surplus month uh but then and the next couple of months tend to be pretty flat there's not big budget deficits that really um uh, d- that really have to be funded over the next few months so will treasury department do something with uh, saying that they're going to issue more debt yes they have to because later this year they're going to have to uh, issue a lot more um, but it's going to be incremental again so it'll be another billion or two of a lot of debt different instruments. Uh, what, what I'm really looking for, quite frankly, are tips. So um, they didn't do anything with, with the Treasury Inflation Protected Security Program uh, last time. And they asked their advisory committee, hey, what should we do with this? And there was a whole you know, 40-page PowerPoint presentation that, uh, that that committee made to the Treasury Department. So the Treasury has been mulling that over uh, over the last few months
2: that's really interesting. And we did, of course, get the uh, first quarter results as far as how much debt the U.S. Treasury sold. $488 billion, a record and exceeding the estimates that the Treasury Department previously came out with. How much credibility do uh, these estimates have if they have exceeded them in the past?
6: Yeah, there's always be, there's always big uh, uh, big variance in it, and and part of that is they might pivot and decide to do something a little bit different in uh, in between. So so that the one thing about that 488 billion is they basically prefunded some of the borrowing that they would have to do this quarter. So um, so the previous estimate for this quarter, for example, was about 175 billion dollars uh, of issuance during the second quarter of 2018. Now it's only 75 because the last quarter they issued an extra hundred billion dollars that was unexpected. So, so the, these estimates are, are just that they're estimates. They always miss them by a little, um, but you know at the same time they're they're kind of useful guides as to the magnitude of increase that they're expecting or the magnitude of of uh, um, of pay down that they're expecting in uh, in the different markets. So when you're trying to forecast exactly how much they're going to issue for T bills all the way through 30 year bonds, um, you need to you need to know that, um, and and so it is helpful information.
1: Ira Jersey is the market raising interest rates and therefore the Federal Reserve won't have to?
6: You know, that's a good question, Pim. I, my my view is no. Uh, you know, the interest rates are somewhat higher. You know, certainly, you know, 3% is the you know, number that I know a lot of people um, look at. I think in the rates market, you know, pretty much everyone yawned and said, oh, 3% is not important because 3.06 is an important technical level and 3% is just another number. Um, but I do think that, that wait, a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You got
1: people who are looking at 3.06 and they're Having you know over lunch discussions about that, and yet a round number like three percent is not interesting. I mean, uh, come on, really?
6: Yeah, yeah uh, for real. Yeah, I'm not getting um, the. Uh, but but. To, to go back to your question about whether or not you know, the Fed doesn't have to hike because the market's doing it for them, I think one of the reasons why we're here, one of the reasons why two-year notes are at 2.5% and the reason why you know, 10-year notes are hovering right around 3% is because, uh, is because the Federal Reserve is expected to hike. If the Federal Reserve were not expected to hike a few more times this year and, and three times next year, then you'd wind up with certainly front-end yields. So, two-year notes and five-year notes would probably be at somewhat lower yields than they are today. Um, you know, ten-year notes in in that scenario might actually move move, uh, move somewhat higher and make uh, potentially new yield highs for this cycle.
2: So, let's say uh, the Treasury Department does announce some kind of new tips issuance. What will that tell you with respect to the U.S.'s expectations uh, regarding inflation?
6: yeah not a lot for inflation know the, the, the issue with the tips program is that there is that it tends to have very spotty liquidity so uh, because they don't issue them as regularly as they issue other instruments there, there is not as much of them outstanding um, they only have one or two new issues every year and then they reopen those issues so I, I you know a big part of the discussion is how do they make that program more liquid how do they get investors more interested how do they make it a program that can be a kind of sustainable funding source? and at the same time be useful from an information purpose for policymakers like the Federal Reserve as to, as to where the market thinks inflation is going to be. So those are, those are all the potential things that, they, uh, that the Treasury Department might try to address. And maybe that's a matter of maybe getting rid of one of the issues, maybe getting rid of, for example, the 30-year and only having 5- and 10-year and then having more frequent auctions of them so you get a little bit more liquidity and better price discovery.
1: Thank you very much. Ira Jersey is our interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
2: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.